Court will now hear argument in Gonzalez versus Oregon. General Clement. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Before Oregon became the first state to authorize assisted suicide, the prescription of federally controlled substances to facilitate suicide generally violated state law and also violated federal law. Respondents contend that Oregon's decision to remove the state law consequences from that conduct also operated to remove the federal law May consequences. May I ask what, what federal law did it violate? It violated the Controlled Substances Act, and the DEA had taken the position before Oregon acted, for example, that the fact that a doctor prescribed controlled substances for purposes of a suicide was a basis for revoking his license. Well, now, would that be true also for any doctor who provided the substances to uh, furnish an execution of a convicted death penalty convict? No, Justice O'Connor. The death penalty situation in lethal injection is different for a number of reasons. Of course, the DEA has long taken a position of non-enforcement in that context, which would be protected by this Court's decision in Heckler against Cheney. But otherwise, it, it would be the same reasoning. I, I don't think it would, Justice O'Connor, at least not since 1994, because in 1994, Congress passed a statute that I think is best read as ratifying the practice of lethal injection. This is 18 U.S.C. 3596. And that statute authorizes the federal government to use the method of execution in the state of the sentencing court. And at the time that was passed in 1994, the overwhelming majority, something like 25 of the 38 states, had already used lethal injection. So I would read that as would it ratification. open to the attorney general to pass a regulation like this one and all of a sudden apply it? Some new attorney general who had a very different view of the death penalty? No, I don't think so, Justice O'Connor. And I think the reason is at a minimum, 18 U.S.C. 3596, because I think that would now stand as an obstacle to that type of regulatory impression. Uh, well, not if it just refers back to the states, would it? No, no, but this is a provision that dictates how the federal government shall do its executions. And I think at that time in 1994, it effectively ratified the practice of using lethal injection. Does the statute, does the federal statute specifically authorize doctors to do this? Or does it simply say that uh, <clears throat> convicts may be executed by lethal injection. Well, the statute itself says that the federal government shall use the method in the state in which the sentencing court sits, the federal sentencing no, court. No, but the method may simply be lethal injection. And going back to Justice O'Connor's question, it might still be the case uh, that on the theory the, the government is advancing this morning, it would be unlawful for a doctor to engage in that because that was, in fact, not uh, within the, the limits of the practice of medicine. The doctor was using uh, a controlled substance for something outside the practice of medicine, and hence it would be illegal. And again, Justice Souter, I think the best reading is that is now foreclosed. That interpretation would be foreclosed by Congress's action in 1994. There are also some technical differences. But I differences. take it Congress did not refer specifically to or, or did not include a specific authorization of doctors so that we'd have to do a little construction to get to your point. I, I think we would have to do a little construction in fairness. But I do think — I mean, and there also are some differences because, for example, as I understand the practice in most states, doctors actually aren't — exactly involved in the specific process of administering the lethal injection. There's also a technical difference, which is, with respect to lethal injection, it's not the federally controlled substance, which is the lethal agent. It's just that there's a federally controlled substance that's used to administer, to relieve pain in conjunction with a different injection that's not, that does not involve a federally controlled substance, and that's actually the lethal agent. Here, of course, it's — In your view, were it not for the statute, the federal statute, your view of the Attorney General's authority is leaving that statute aside if it weren't there. The Attorney General, should we have an Attorney General who was opposed to the death penalty, could in fact regulate or stop federal state death penalties through this same uh, mechanism by saying that no physician uh, can be registered uh, uh, insofar as he engages in that. Justice Breyer, I haven't thoroughly considered the issue precisely because I do think the 94 statute stands as an obstacle. It may be that some of the differences in the way that the death penalty is administered, the fact that doctors aren't directly involved, at, at would most, allow for it, At most, it would allow him to, uh, uh, to prosecute or to, uh, to move for the uh, decertification of doctors who engage in that practice. And if the state chooses to do it without doctors, it would be okay. 
I think that's right. As I say, I think some of the technical ways in which the penalty is administered could make a difference. Breyer, at least what I'm getting at with this is I would probably have read the statute to say that the drug statute, which is trying to stop drug addiction and heroin, has nothing to do with the death penalty. And I would think that the argument on the other side is that the statute has nothing to do with assisted suicide. Congress didn't think about the death penalty and it didn't think about assisted suicide. It's rather like the tobacco case, except a fortiori. Now, what's your response to that? Well, several points, Justice Breyer. I think that, first of all, I would say that Congress did focus on suicide, if not physician-assisted suicide, and I think that's an important distinction that I'd like to come back to. But I actually think the comparison to the tobacco case is quite instructive, because there what you had is a statute in which something seemed like it might come within the plain terms of the FDCA. And yet, if you took that literally, it would run smack into another statutory scheme. And here, there is no other statutory scheme. To the contrary, the most natural reading of the Controlled Substances Act, I would say, and I'll address it in a minute, is that this falls within the authority of the Attorney General. And if you look to any alternative congressional indication of intent on this topic, the only thing you would find is the Assisted Suicide Funding Restriction Act of 1997, which continues a Federal policy against assisted suicide. So in that sense, I think it's very different than the Brown and Williamson case. Now, taking, though, as to what Congress — May I ask you about the position this Court took in Glucksburg? That is, everyone on the Court in that case seemed to assume that physician-assisted suicide was a matter for the State. And the government at that time said State legislatures undoubtedly have the authority to create the kind of exception to assisted suicide fashioned by the Court of Appeals. There is every reason to believe that State legislatures will address the urgent issues involved in this case in a fair and impartial way. And then the government added that there is no indication that the political processes are malfunctioning in this area. That was a position presented to this Court in the Glucksburg case by the government. Now, you are rejecting that position. With respect, Justice Ginsburg, I don't think so. We stand by the brief in Glucksburg. Now, obviously, in the Glucksburg case, the Federal law that everybody was focused on, and in fairness, the United States was focused on, was the Federal Constitution. And so that's one important difference. Another important difference, and I think this is an important point, is that the Federal regulation here, the interpretation of the Attorney General, does not purport to foreclose the issue of assisted suicide. Well, they say that in practical terms that is exactly what it does, because the only way they can administer their law sensibly is by using these kinds of drugs, scheduled drugs. Well, Justice Souter, we don't have a factual record on that question. I think it's not clear that that's the case, because, I mean, proponents of physician-assisted suicide have identified alternative methods. Perhaps the most notorious proponent of physician-assisted suicide, Dr. Kevorkian, operated without a Federally controlled substance license for the last six years before his conviction. Well, did he use a controlled substance? He did not. He did not, which is why he could do that. So it just goes to prove that physician-assisted suicide and the use of Federally controlled substances for physician-assisted suicide are not coextensive. But we're told that those methods are less gentle to the patient. The methods that the State of Oregon has authorized its physicians to prescribe, we are told, at least in some of the briefs, that from the patient's point of view, that's much less upsetting. Justice Ginsburg, we operate without a factual record on that point. In doing some outside reading, it seems that some of the other methods are actually disapproved, not because they're less, more painful, but because it's more obvious that it's a suicide in certain cases, and the administration of scheduled drugs sort of blurs that line. But I guess my point would be, even if we take it as true that controlled substances are the most efficient way to do this, I take it as a given that if Oregon doctors decided that a Schedule I substance was the most effective way to administer a lethal overdose, after this Court's decision in Raich. Congress spoke about Section Schedule I drugs, and that's what's lacking here. Congress said Schedule 
one drugs, those are no, never. Schedule two, okay on a doctor's prescription. I agree there is that difference between Schedule One and Schedule Two substances. Now, I think that brings us to the Attorney General's regulation, which is a long-standing regulation. General Bender, before you go there, I want to question you about your distinction between Dr. Kevorkian and a doctor who uses controlled substances. Why could not the Attorney General treat uh, Dr. Kevorkian's conduct as conduct that may threaten the public health and safety and seek his uh, cancellation of his license? Justice Stevens, I don't think he could. First of all, I think it's clear that that isn't the authority that's invoked here, and the Attorney General and the OLC he, opinion are, are He can rely on, on things like prior convictions, other things unrelated to a specific transaction. And if he thinks that assisted suicide is contrary uh, conduct that threatens the public interest, health, and safety, I don't know why that wouldn't apply to Dr. Kevorkian as well as somebody using controlled substances. Well, Justice Stevens, the reason I would say that it wouldn't is I think you have to read this regulation against a backdrop that for 90 years the federal government has been involved in the regulation of controlled substances. Now, there have been a lot of statements and a lot of court opinions during that 90 years. the Attorney General's uh, directive, if I remember it, does not identify any particular controlled substance. It just identifies a particular kind of conduct by the doctor. I'm not sure if you're referring to the statute or the regulation. I I would say it this way. Neither one is identifying which uh, Schedule II or Schedule III substance may not be used. I, I think that's fair, Justice Stevens. I don't take issue with that. And I think you're right to say that the statutory grant of authority to the Attorney General is quite broad. He's supposed to make judgments in the public interest about public health and safety. The point I was trying to make is I would read all of that against the backdrop that for 90 years the federal government has been involved in the regulation of controlled substance. And we all know that that is going to have an incidental effect on the state regulation well, of well, medicine. Well, for me, for me, the case turns on the statute, and it's a hard case. And it seems to me that your answer to Justice Stevens would be to say that the Justice Department has found this practice to be an abuse of the drug. But then my question, and if, if you had in fact given that answer, my, my, question, my, my question would, would, would then be, uh, isn't it an, an odd statutory scheme where the Attorney General can find it to be an abuse of the use of the drug if the state of Oregon has specifically told its doctors under special procedures and defined circumstances that they can administer it. Well, I don't think that would be an odd regime. I think if, for example, Oregon made a radically different judgment and said that in Oregon it was going to be permissible to, to have treatment, treatment or detoxification programs that involved the administration of radically larger quantities of controlled substances than had been recognized in any other state. I think under the authority of cases like Moore, the Attorney General could make a judgment. Now, that, that's not a legitimate medical purpose. Well, that's, that's, that, that's, that's a, the slippery slope argument that I wanted to explore a bit. If, if we do rule uh, against you and for the state of Oregon on the statute, uh, you do think that there will be some other serious consequences uh, which will hinder the Department of Justice in an orderly implementation of this statute, particularly under the abuse Uh, formulation? I think there could be, Justice Kennedy. I don't want to overstate it in the sense that one of the reasons you don't see that much of a conflict between federal and state law in the regulation of controlled substances is because in the main the states have adopted uniform controlled substances acts that mirror the federal act and in most of the instances there works in a way of kind of cooperative federalism in dealing with this problem. This Court tends to see the cases, Raish in this case, where there's a conflict between the state regime and the federal regime. And I guess my point is, in such a comprehensive federal regime, if this Court makes clear that state law can overtake the federal regime, I think it at least creates the potential for there to be a lot of holes in the regime and the possibility if states take, the, take, take, take you up on that invitation but, but to really part, undermine the regime. Part of the regime referred to under the statute, it's 801A, implementing the Convention on Psychotropic Drugs. And there the implementation um, incorporates the treaty. But it says that this shall not displace the judgment of the medical community as determined by the secretary. And it seems to me that that cuts against you in this case. Well, Justice Kennedy, it is perfectly true that there are places in the statute where medical or scientific decisions are expressly given to the Secretary of Health and Human Services and not the Attorney General. 
But it is equally true that there are places in the Controlled Substances Act where medical determinations or public health determinations are given expressly to the Attorney General and not the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And one of the places, of course, that's true is Sections 823 and 824 of Title uh, Title 21, which, of course, are the provisions about the registration and revocation of registrants. And Congress — Certainly the the practice of medicine by physicians is is an area traditionally regulated by the states, is it not? It absolutely is, Justice O'Connor. And there's nothing express in the statute suggesting that it's designed to put in the hands of the federal government or the attorney general the regulation of the practice of medicine, is there? Justice O'Connor, there's nothing that says we want to take over the regulation of medicine, but it's crystal clear. Well, there were two attempts, were there not, to get legislation passed to do this expressly in Congress, and they failed? Well, uh, yes, but I think this Court is always hesitant to draw inferences from failed legislative efforts. And if the Attorney General had not adopted this interpretation, it may be that this Congress would have passed those initiatives. And a prior Attorney General had a different interpretation. And and, and the prior uh, Administrator of the DEA before that had our position. So this is an area where I think, you know, there are different approaches to this. What I wanted to make clear, though, is you're absolutely right that the regulation of medicine, this Court has observed, is traditionally left to the states. But that has to be reconciled with the fact that for 90 years, the federal government has had a prominent role in the regulation of controlled substances. And it's been clear since yeah, the very — Are these, are these drugs um, classified as illegal for all purposes? Not for all oh. purposes, but they are highly classified, highly controlled substances. They are the, 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 the substances that are at issue here are the most highly controlled lawful substances. And I think if you go back to the history of the Harrison Act, it's been clear since the very first prosecutions under the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914 that the federal government's ability to regulate medicine was going to have an incidental effect on the state's ability to regulate medicine. I mean, states had much more of a laissez attitude towards uh, laissez-faire attitude towards the opium trade, but that was really displaced yeah, but by the a, Harrison Act. It's a Act. different thing to regulate by saying no one can prescribe this substance. It's so lethal, we won't let anyone prescribe it at all. And it's quite different to say this, if a, if a physician follows the Oregon law, it's, a, it's not a legitimate practice of medicine. That's a very different approach. Justice O'Connor, I, I can't tell you there isn't a difference between the treatment of Schedule I substances yeah. that are just verboten for all purposes mm-hmm. and Schedule II substances. But the regulation of federal controlled substances in the Har- Harrison Act has always focused on drugs that have some lawful medical uses but are also susceptible what, what, of abuse. What is the closest analog you have outside of the present case where the Attorney General's enforcement activity has impinged upon what the state is recognized as medical practice? Well, I, I think I would, I mean, I, I guess I would do two answers to that, Mr. Chief Justice. One, I would point to the fact that at the genesis of the Harrison Act, it really was displacing state medical judgments about the opium trade. I would point to two other examples, one under this statute and one other the F, under the FDCA. The idea under the FDCA, the example that comes to mind, is the FDA's treatment of laetril that this Court addressed in the Rutherford decision. In that case, 17 states had made a judgment that laetril could be available for prescription use to treat cancer. And the FDA, by refusing to approve Well, that's the FDA. I'm talking about the Attorney General under this statute. Well, then I think I would — I mean, I'm not sure I can point to — a decision by the Attorney General, but I think it's in the structure of this Act. Obviously, the, the, the Schedule One treatment of marijuana that this Court had before it in the Raich case involved a situation where the Act clearly displaced the medical judgments of California and nine other states. No, but that was a clear act of Congress. I mean, Congress had made that decision, and it was unmistakable. It seems to me that the problem that you have uh, with, with your reference back to the Harrison Act and the 90 years of regulation is that the 90 years of regulation was regulation for the purpose of stopping drug pushing and drug abuse in the conventional sense. And to say that a statute or a statutory history taken into consideration in, in, uh, in, in, in determining the scope of this statute, with that kind of a history, can support a view that suddenly the Attorney General of the United States uh, is given, in effect, the, the sole authority to determine whether any state may or may not authorize assisted suicide. 
and may do so in a way that any other attorney general can flip back and forth, as has happened in this case, uh, if, if Attorney General Reno was wrong, uh, seems to me a, 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 a kind of argument from history that simply uh, cuts against you because it leads to a, a sort of a bizarre result. I mean, what is your response to that? Well, Justice Souter, I think you have to look at the regulation of drug abuse and ask, to what end was Congress regulating these substances? Well, and I, as I said, it seems to me that your 91 years of history say that the end that Congress had in mind was to stop drug pushing and stop conventional drug abuse. Uh, it didn't have any more. There's no indication that I know of that Congress had assisted suicide in mind any more than it had the administration of the death penalty in mind. Well, Justice Souter, what I would say is what Congress had in mind in enacting these substances is they were concerned about drug abuse, not for its own sake, but for the debilitating effect it has on people's lives, for its tendency to destroy lives. And I will grant you that Congress in 1970 did not have before it in its contemplation a state that would make physician-assisted suicide lawful. But that's because it would have been unthinkable at that time. And what Congress did have clearly in its contemplation is the fact that a clear manifestation of a drug's potential for abuse was the fact that it could lead to suicide and overdoses. And that's page 35 of the House report for those that look at legislative history. And I actually think that — Suicide as a result of the kind of dementia that comes from drug abuse. That, that, that is not suicide under the circumstances that we're talking about uh, within the, the, the limits of the Oregon law. Well, uh, Congress didn't specify one way or another. And what I would — I would point you to the House report because I think it actually is indicative. Because when Congress is framing the issue, they first look at the extent of the problem. And one of the ways they identify the problem as serious is they point to overdoses that are taking place among teenagers. And then in the next section of the report, they look at the question of the consequences of drug abuse. And what do they point to as the consequences? May I I just ask this this question? We're focusing on whether Congress really authorized this action by the Attorney General. And in the Rich case, which, of course, was a close case, there were three dissents in the case, there's great attention on the fact Congress had considered the interstate market for the product involved an impact on the market if it was allowed to be sold in California or grown and so forth in California. But is there any evidence at all that Congress thought that any of these control, uh, uh, Schedule two or three substances are used in uh, assisted suicide situations, that Congress focused on the impact of that use on the interstate market for those drugs? Well, Justice Stevens, I mean, I, I mean, first of all, I would say that compared to race, I would almost think this is an a fortiori case as it affects commerce, because unlike race, which, of course, were untraditional non-commercial transactions, the transactions at issue here are standard commercial transactions that are well within — Are they transactions that have any impact on any market, any commercial market that Congress ever mentioned? I think they do, and I sure hope they do, because this is a situation where Congress and the federal government pervasively regulates the drug transactions at issue here in a way that even respondents don't object to. The details of the form that you fill out for the prescription, the fact that it has to be in writing, the regulations specify whether it has to be in pen or pencil. I mean, there's such a pervasive involvement of the federal government in the regulation of these controlled substances that I don't think there's any additional Commerce Clause extension by regulating the purpose for which the prescription is being made. That's what the the DEA did in the context of Marinol when it was first moved from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. We discussed that in detail on page 30 of our brief. And I think that kind of regulation, although it's not a common feature of the DEA and its administration of the Controlled Substances Act, is an important one, is a legitimate one. And I guess what I would say with respect to Congress's intent is it seems to me odd to think that a Congress that was concerned about overdoses, concerned about suicides, would be indifferent or agnostic on the question of using federally controlled substances for the express purpose of inducing a lethal overdose. Why were you were going to say at one point, why was Congress concerned about overdoses of narcotics and so forth? Why? I think they were concerned with it part and parcel of, because, I mean, I think one of the things that Congress does when it regulates is it regulates to protect life, to protect health yeah, but I mean, and safety. There was a reason, wasn't there, that, that, that they're worried about people taking narcotics? I mean, sure there are. Sure there are. And they're worried about the impact. I would have thought it was a narcotics addiction. Well, I I think it is, but again, I think. Well, if it is narcotics addiction, then I would have thought that was it. 
No, not solely. Yeah, because you know I'm going to say, what has this got to do with that? So what, what, why not solely? Well, not solely. You go ahead. What, what else? Not solely. And, and, and again, I mean, I think, you know, addiction, qua addiction, was not the concern so much as addiction because of its tendency to debilitate lives, to destroy yes, yes, lives. but it's through addiction, and this seems to... Well, no, I don't think that's right, Justice Breyer. I think there are a number of instances where the abuse that is being — the Congress is concerned with is not solely the addictive abuse. I mean, to take one example, Congress has recently, as part of the controlled substances regime, regulated GHB, one of these so-called date rape drugs. And the concern for abuse there is not its addictive quality, but the fact that it can, can be used in a way that's not medical, that can be very pernicious and the like. And so I think that's just another example of this concept of abuse being much broader than a narrow focus on diversion or a narrow focus on addiction. Yeah, but even in your example, the, the concern of Congress is with the use of the drug to hurt people who do not understand that they're going to be hurt and don't want to be hurt, and perhaps in your example, the use of the drug to facilitate the violation of the law. That seems to me worlds away from what we're talking about here. Well, Justice Souter, I would simply say that the Controlled Substances Act, if you look at it, is a very paternalistic piece of legislation. It's not designed to let people make their own judgments about the health risks. And if I could reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, General Clement. Mr. Atkinson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, since Gibbons versus Ogden, at the very latest, this Court has recognized that in the system of dual sovereignty created by American federalism. Would you speak up just a little, please? I'm sorry, Your Honor, I will. Elevate your microphone. Maybe raise the podium. <laughs> no, I'll work on that, Your up. Honor. No, the, the crank will raise it if you. No, the other way around. Thank you. Yes, Your Honor. What the Court said in Gibbons versus Ogden was that health laws of every description were for the states to regulate. In Glucksburg, this well, the Court relationship between the states and the federal government has changed a little since Gibbons versus Ogden. That, that's certainly true, Your Honor. And yet, I think if you look both at your opinion in Glucksburg and in the opinion, excuse me, and in the text of the Controlled Substances Act, you will find that this Court has recognized that this specific subject, physician-assisted dying, is one that is for the states to regulate. That begs the question. If you had said this specific subject, the regulation of controlled substances, your answer would have come out the other way, which is kind of what the case is about. I agree. And, and let me talk then about the, why we believe the text of the statute demonstrates that Congress intended to leave the dis decision about what is and is not a legitimate medical practice to the states as it has always been. And that's the key question in this case, because the U.S. Attorney General — I mean, wouldn't suppose that some states said that we think doctors can uh, prescribe for people who want to take it uh, morphine for recreational use? Your Honor, there are a number of limits clear in the Controlled Substances Act. Um, but taking the hypothetical you've offered specifically, we think that the answer would have to be that Congress intended to leave the definition of what is a legitimate medical practice no to the what, states. I mean, they have cases and so forth that say, of course, a state could go too far. A state might decide it's just what I said. And you're going to say your case turns or falls you win or lose, depending on whether I accept uh, uh, that a state could not stop a doctor uh, from becoming, in effect, a conduit uh, to a group of d drug dealers uh, by saying, I think recreational use is part of my medical practice. That would be up to the state. Certainly the state could stop it. Yes. The question No, no it didn't stop it. Would the state allow it? And, yes. And if the state allowed it, the federal government would have to allow the drugs to be used for that well, purpose. Here. There are a number of limits in the text of the Act itself. There are limits in other stat federal statutes not contained in the CSA. There is also the political limits on irresponsible lawmaking at both the state and the federal level that have served us well for almost 200 years. I would have thought that at the time this, uh, this legislation was enacted, it would have been as unthinkable for a state to allow drugs to be used, uh, uh, to be prescribed by a doctor to kill a patient, as it would be for drugs to be uh, subscribed by a doctor to make the patient feel better. 
Your Honor, many drugs. I, I mean, I, I think that assisted suicide would have been as unthinkable at the time this was enacted as prescribing uh, uh, cocaine just for recreational use. We don't suggest that Congress had physician-assisted dying specifically in mind at the time that it enacted the Controlled Substances Act. What we do think that Congress had in mind was the 200-year history of state regulation of medicine, of the practice of medicine, and what were and were not legitimate medical purposes. But you agree, you, you, in answer to Justice Breyer's question, he mentioned a drug that was a Schedule I drug, morphine. Or maybe I'm sorry. I think it is a Schedule II drug, Your Honor. Schedule II drug. Yes. We certainly don't suggest that a state could authorize the use of a Schedule I drug for any purpose at all. Are, are you saying that if the doctor is using it, saying, in my medical judgment, this makes people happy, and therefore I'm going to prescribe it, that a state could permit that? Wouldn't the Moore case rule that out? I don't think so, Your Honor. There, aren't, there is no history of the U.S. Attorney General prosecuting any doctor at any time in the, in the, since before Moore. But I thought the idea of Moore was if you're using this, the doctor's prescribing the drug as a pusher. That's correct. And we have no, we have. Well, but let's, but the supposition is that the state legal judgment is that that's the wrong characterization, that it's legitimate medical practice to make patients feel better, and morphine does that. And so the state can allow them to prescribe morphine to make people feel better. And I understand your position to be that that would be permissible? That yes. could not That's not prohibited under the Controlled that Substances is, Act. That is not prohibited under the Controlled Substances Act if the doctor was acting consistent with the specific terms of the Act and the specific terms of a state statute. You say the Attorney General of the United States could not deem it to be drug abuse under the Act if a state allowed that for recreational use or to cure depression or how about steroids for bodybuilders and decided that's perfectly okay. Now, can the Attorney General find that that's drug abuse? As the term drug abuse is used in the statute, Justice O'Connor, it is used expressly in terms of the scheduling decisions that the U.S. Attorney General is authorized to make and required to make. It is not otherwise generally used. What the controlled substance... Well, I don't know that I understand your answer. Could the Attorney General deem the authorization, purported authorization by a physician to use morphine... Um, to help with depression or steroids for bodybuilding, can the Attorney General say under the Act that's drug abuse? Not if it is permitted by st and regulated by state law. Suppose I disagreed with you about that. Then would, would uh, uh, you lose the case? I would certainly lose ground, Your Honor. Um, I'm asking <laughs> if I disagreed with you that I thought we take the facts of Moore, where he's a drug pusher, the doctor, and for some unknown reason, the state says that's fine. It doesn't violate state law. But the attorney general says, do what you want about state law. I think it violates the federal law. Suppose I think the, the attorney general does have the right to do that. For assuming, assuming it, then what do you say about this case? Well, first of all, we don't think Justice Breyer, that what the U.S. Attorney General is attempting to do here is reasonable within the scope of whatever authority he has. Moreover, he has not followed the processes and procedures that are specified in the Controlled Substances Act. But our first position in this case is he simply lacks the authority to do that. The Controlled Substances Act reflects first in Section 903, the anti-preemption provision, which is found in the state's brief at page 36, that Congress intended not to intrude on state laws that would otherwise be within the authority of the state. What does that do to the effectiveness of regulation under the Controlled Substances Act? If one state can say it's legal for doctors to prescribe morphine to make people feel better or to pre prescribe steroids for bodybuilding, doesn't that undermine the uniformity of the federal law and make enforcement impossible? 
I don't believe it does, Mr. Chief Justice. In the first instance, we think the U.S. Attorney General's claim of uniformity is overstated. We think it's clear from the text of the statute that Congress intended to leave the definition of what is or is not a legitimate medical practice in the well, that hands may or may of the not states. be true, but focus on the particular question. If you have one state that allows the use of a, a drug that the federal government has determined is illegal and is illegal everywhere else because other states haven't done it, how is the federal government supposed to enforce that prohibition? Well, I don't think the federal government is supposed to enforce that prohibition if the prohibition, if we're dealing with a Schedule 2, 3, 4, 4, or 5 substance. Congress has clearly spoken to Schedule 1 substances. Once we move into the other substances, traditionally and has, had, has been the, as is the case today in every state, physicians under the regulation of state medical boards prescribe those medications for purposes other than those for which they're normally prescribed. I'm trying to get at the specific enforcement point. If you have one state that allows morphine to be used legally for recreational yes. purposes, uh, how is the federal government supposed to enforce the prohibition on that elsewhere? Well, there is no — well, the Congress can prescribe — can enforce it in any state in which it is not authorized by state law. If the U.S. Attorney General wants to regulate it in a state where it is authorized by state law, he must go to Congress and get a clear statement of authority to do that. But are you saying in response to the Chief Justice's question that, in fact, Congress itself could not explicitly pass a statute uh, that says no state, through its doctors or otherwise, may authorize the use of morphine? Not at all, Justice. All right. So you're not making a constitutional no, argument. You're sticking to your statutory argument. We're sticking to the statutory okay. argument. Which we, comes down to uh, an argument that accepted medical practice means accepted medical practice state by state. That's correct. Rather than on some uniform basis. Do, do you have any other area uh, uh, regarding the enforcement of this act where uh, the, the, the drug is allowed or not allowed to be used on the basis of divergent views of medical practice by, by divergent states? There, there are any number of areas in which such states what? diverge, such as palliative care, I think is the most obvious in, uh, example these days. There's a great deal of divergence among the states as in to how palliative that. care, and you think in some states you can, uh, you, you can prescribe these drugs without violating the act, whereas in other states uh, the same prescription would violate the act. In some states, a prescription would violate state law, and in other cases, in other states, that same prescription would not. Would it violate the federal law in those other states? It would, if the if the prescription violated the state law, the U.S. Attorney General could take action against the physician. Oh, so, so you say that, that in, with respect to many, uh, many aspects of this legislation, uh, what's lawful and what's lawful depends upon the, the accepted medical practice within the state. That's exactly correct, Justice. Does this have to be reflected in the state medical board determinations or just in, in what, the, what the doctors in that region uh, tend to think is a good idea? Your Honor, what we believe is that what Congress did in enacting the, the Controlled Substances Act was leave those decisions to the states to enforce according to their traditional methods. Now, in some cases, that may be by statute. In some cases, the, the states may uh, discipline doctors uh, for, uh, through a state medical board. Cases that, that, that you can think of where, where the same prescription has been held okay in one state and not okay in another state? Your Honor, we're not aware of any cases in which the U.S. Attorney General has ever attempted to deregister or to prosecute a doctor who is acting in accordance with state law. We have a history that we're uh, to, at least since the Controlled Substances Act in 1970, where the, the U.S. Attorney General has never attempted to suggest, as he does here, that something that is permissible under state law is in any sense a violation. Yes, of but so the statute act. goes beyond the state law. There are five factors, you know, on the justify the revocation, yes. and well, some are uh, compliance with state law, but the fifth factor is such other conduct which may threaten the public health and safety. It seems to me that's a clear grant of authority to go beyond state law. Justice Stevens, we think that the best reading 
of the five factors is that they continue to respect state laws. Certainly that's what the legislative history, for those of you who would be willing to look at it, of the 1984 amendments reflects. Congress was not concerned about how states were defining legitimate medical practices. Congress was concerned about the failure to enforce existing state law. And that's clearly reflected in the legislative history, some of which is set out in the state's brief on page 36 in note 16. But if you look at those five factors, what they are addressed to is individual applicants, that is individual doctors, not to broad medical purposes. And what you're seeing here in the Attorney General's claim of authority for the first time is, is rules that are not addressed to controlled substances per se, but to medical practices. And that is something that the Congress simply never contemplated giving him. Well, what do you do with the regulation 1306, which is the one that, of course, talks about legitimate medical purpose? That was promulgated in 1971. It wasn't directed to the Oregon statute, and yet it suggests that the Attorney General has the authority to interpret that phrase. Well, we think there's, there are two answers to that, uh, Chief, Mr. Chief Justice. The first is that in Harris versus Christensen, this Court said that an, a federal agent cannot promulgate a new regulation in the guise of interpreting an old one. Now, in 1971, when that regulation to which you refer was enacted, it was absolutely clear that the U.S. Attorney General could not have deregistered an Oregon doctor who was acting in accordance with state law, because, as this Court pointed out in United States versus Moore, the registration was a matter was as a matter of right if the phys, if the physician was in good standing with state medical authorities so what he's attempting to do today in the guise of interpreting that rule is to make it mean something entirely different than what it meant when he enacted it and i think uh, christensen versus harris county says that he simply cannot do that the second answer excuse me i'm sorry you had a second answer um that's all right i'm i'm i I'm happy with the first one at this point. Mr. Atkinson, you've you've spent most of your time uh, talking about the statute and the regulations. Do you also make the argument that even if the government wanted to do this thing, uh, it would be unconstitutional? We do, Your Honor. One of the questions presented in Raich was whether Congress could do what it had done. The question here is, first of all, is whether Congress did what it had done. And our point is not necessarily that it would be unconstitutional, but that it would raise a significant constitutional question which implicates the clear statement rule and the constitutional avoidance rule. Why would it raise a significant constitutional question? I take it that it's none of the government's business uh, whether people gamble or not. I take it it's none of the federal government. I take it's none of the federal government's business whether people are allowed to drink at 21 or at 18 uh, and innumerable other things, which really are matters that, uh, that belong to the police power of the states. But the federal government has chosen to regulate those things through the use of its commerce power. Is, is the drinking age any more a matter of uh, — any less a matter of, of, of state privilege than, than — uh, than, than suicide? No, I, I wouldn't say that it's. So, are, are those are, are those uh, entries of the federal government into the regulation of drinking age? Are they unconstitutional? No. Do they raise serious constitutional questions? No, they don't, Justice. Well, why does this one? The I difference think? here is simply that there is, the amounts, as was suggested earlier, are so minute that there cannot be any significant effect on interstate commerce. There is not even any evidence in this record that there is a market for the drugs that are used under the Death with Dignity Act, much less that there is an illicit trade. So there's no question here of, of, as the Court described it in Raich, where you had a $10 billion market of ripping. Ten states adopted uh, uh, assisted suicide. It might be a different, uh, different Once again, Your Honor, in, question. In, in Oregon's experience, we have a, a small number of people, most of whom consume the drug. Uh, the amounts that are left over, even if this law spread nationwide, would not be significant. Would you spend the, a minute? St the statute gives the Attorney General authority to promulgate regulations for the dispensing of drugs, uh, 821. And that seems to me to describe precisely what the Attorney General has done here. 
I, I can't disagree with that, Justice Kennedy. The question is, does he have authority to tell a doctor in a particular state, not by, a, by reference to a particular drug, that he may not dispense this drug, but that he may not dispense a drug for a specific medical purpose? And as I've suggested, this is the first time we've ever seen that happen. And, and we think that's because it's inconsistent with the congressional design, which was to leave the subject of what are and are not legitimate medical purposes to the states and to, and to have the U.S. Attorney General promulgate rules that deal with things like the, uh, like prescriptions, to scheduling of those drugs so that they are on Schedule 2 or Schedule 3 or perhaps well, Schedule 1. It very odd to have a regulation on dispensing uh, that takes no account of the purpose for which the drug is being used. Well, we think it's somewhat odder, frankly, Justice Kennedy, to suggest that Congress intended to authorize a single unelected federal official to decide in his sole and apparently unreviewable discretion that this medical practice of which he disapproves may not well, be followed. Well, but I followed. get a statutory reference, and then you tell me about something else. Well, no, I, we agree that he gets to authorize regulations on dispensation to require, for example, that there be prescriptions before it be dispensed, that physicians shall follow certain rules and regulations before they dispense. And those are the kinds of things on which we agree he has the authority to engage in rulemaking and to, and to uh, promulgate uniform. I'm sorry, on that, I didn't think that the reg was defining the word dispense. I thought the statute defines the word dispense, and it's persons registered by the AG to dispense controlled substances are exempt. And then you look at who is such a person. A person who does that is a practitioner. And who is a practitioner? A registered practitioner is one who prescribes uh, a physician registered by the United States to distribute or dispense a controlled substance in the course of professional practice. And I thought this reg is defining in the course of professional practice. Am I wrong about that? I thought it was a reg that says in the course of professional practice, the prescription to be effective must be a legitimate medical purpose by an individual practitioner. Now, I might be wrong. How does it work? No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, but the, the question, that, that is a very different question from the question of who gets to define as a matter of policy what is a legitimate medical practice. A matter of policy. I would, since if, you, if you've said basically what you want to say in your argument, I would appreciate your devoting a minute to an assumption which you don't want to agree with. But suppose I were to assume that a state is not free through the device of defining what's good medical practice to gut the act. That is to really make marijuana or something else like morphine legal because they disagree with Congress's basic judgment that it should be illegal. That could happen. I suppose I think that the AG does have the power to stop Congress from gutting the act. All right? Now on that, do I have, if I believe that, on that assumption, do I have to decide this case against you? No. If not, why not? There are at least two reasons for that, Justice Breyer. The first is the Commerce Clause question, which we believe to be a Suppose on the Commerce Clause question, I, on assumption, I don't agree with you either. Then do I have to decide? <laughs> Starting to be backed into a corner. Um, I, I think I think the third answer then becomes the procedural answer, Justice Breyer, and that is that what the U.S. Attorney General is doing here, it, it violates the rule this Court stated in Christensen versus Harris County, and he is attempting to do by an administrative rule what he can only do by notice and comment rulemaking. I would be at me to suggest an argument that would, you don't want to make, but I mean I've found it different in life and law uh, when you pass a rule in a state that guts an act from when you pass a rule in a state that doesn't seem to have much to do with the purpose of the act. Well, I certainly would not disagree with that. In yes, you way. would. I, I, I think it seems to me <laughs> — it seems to me that, you, that you, you cannot accept the premise that it guts the act if you come in here with the proposition, which you do, that what the act says — is whatever is accepted medical practice within the state is okay. 
That's your principal point? That is The correct. Act does not refer to any overall Federal accepted medical practice. It refers to accepted medical practice State by State, and therefore it in no way guts the Act if a State wants to let, uh, let these uh, drugs be used for, uh, you know, make people happy purposes. I, I don't see how you can accept the premise. I wasn't anxious to accept it, Justice Scalia, but I, 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 was, I thought I was being told to. Let me, <laughs> let, let, but let me, let me offer, if I can. Um, we, we may, may I ask you, in, Mr. Atkinson, in response uh, to the question you were just asked, you said there, there were procedural problems, no notice and comment. So that's a how it's done. That How about the who? Is this something — how does it work under the Controlled Substance Act? What authority does the uh, Department of HHS have? What is the division of authority between those two under the Act? The Attorney General on the one hand and the Department of Health and Human Services, and including the FDA on the other. Justice Ginsburg, I can't answer that question in specific respect to this case because there is no authority in the Controlled Substances Act for anyone to do what has been done here, that is to focus on a specific medical practice and say no controlled substance but can you be made, used. You made a point earlier that the Attorney General has never done this before, has never said you can't prescribe particular drugs for um, has, that, that has not been done. You've been given examples of where the FDA rules that you can't use a drug, and that controls nationwide, no matter what the state medical board thinks, right? Yes. There, is, there are, for example, in scheduling of drugs, and, and, and the U.S. Attorney General suggests, for example, that he could simply schedule these drugs in a way to, as a way of avoiding uh, the, the Oregon Act or voiding the Oregon Act, as it were. And to do that, he has to get his medical and scientific advice from the Secretary of Health and Services and must accept that advice and be bound by it. And certainly that wasn't done in this case. So I, I hope that answers your question. The consultation, you said, was not with HHS, and it wasn't with Oregon. Who did the Attorney General consult? To the best of our knowledge, uh, it was solely done within the Department of Justice. May I ask this question concerning Justice Flea's suggestion that you're insisting the states would have the authority to act independently of a congressional prohibition against the use of a substance to make people happy and so forth? Isn't your point in this case that Congress hasn't really spoken to the issue to which the Attorney General has spoken? That's exactly right. Which is the opposite of the case that uh, Justice Scalia puts, where the Congress has spoken to the issue. And there are circumstances in which it has and and those in which it has not. And and, and to try to respond to Justice Scalia's point, again, I would invoke the 200 years of responsible regulation of the practice of medicine, which is the backdrop against which Congress legislated in this case. Congress does not lightly assume, nor should it, that states are going to are going to simply legalize drugs to make people happy. It hasn't happened. Congress doesn't assume it's going to happen. States act responsibly. Congress assumes Well, but in 1971, Congress didn't assume the states were going to pass legislation for use of drugs to assist with suicide either. No, that's certainly true, Mr. Chief Justice, but Congress knew, as we all know, that the practice of medicine evolves, that things change, that today's today's acupuncture, the use of Botox, things that were unheard of 30 years ago, are all accepted medical practices today, and they are all regulated by the states, not by the U.S. Attorney General. And the question here is whether Congress intended to enact a uniform medical practices act. These are all different manners of assisting people to stay alive or assisting people to feel better. Uh, assisting people to, to die is, is something of a totally different category. 
Justice Scalia, I have to disagree. There's a great deal of medical practice now and attention focused on end-of-life issues. Uh, this court has, has, has seen them, for example, and in, in Cruzan, the court said it is a matter for the states to decide those things. The court has seen cases that involve do not resuscitate orders. The court is familiar with living wills. There are any number I of that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, taking a position on whether, you know, a state wants to allow it or not. I'm just taking a position on whether it was envisioned by Congress in 1971 that accepted medical practice would include uh, prescribing drugs to help somebody end his life. And I don't think it, I don't think it would have occurred to them. I, I, I don't think that it would have occurred to them either, Justice Scalia. But I do think what occurred to them was that that was a matter that, like any other matter dealing with the regulation of medical practice, the states could be trusted to act responsibly. That's what Oregon has done here. That's what this court invited the states to do in Glucksburg. I, I think it you would agree that, in effect, all you need to win on the statutory argument is for us to accept the premise that Congress may very well have intended to interfere with the practice of medicine and to authorize the Attorney General to do it, insofar as the practice of medicine would have gutted the statute, e.g., doctors who prescribe recreational drugs, doctors who, in effect, cater to pushers, but that Congress did not intend to go any further than that in authorizing interference with the practice of medicine. I take it you agree that if we accepted that premise, that would be sufficient for you in this case. That's absolutely true. Okay. That's absolutely true, Justice Souter. But this case is, is obviously about, about statutory construction, but it's about statutory construction in a very special area, and that is the area of federalism, of the relationship between the sovereign states and the federal government. We think it's clear from examining the statute that Congress intended to retain and respect the historic powers of the states to define legitimate medical practices. Thank you, Counsel. General Clement, you have four minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I think respondents have embraced the logical consequences of their position. And what it results in is turning the Controlled Substances Act, the Federal Controlled Substances Act, into an odd patchwork. It also is profoundly ahistorical, because at the time of the Harrison Act of 1914, which the Controlled Substances Act was intended to strengthen, not weaken, as this Court pointed out in Moore. At that time, the states had a variety of different approaches to opium and, and heroin and other and cocaine and other substances, opium and cocaine now of which land on Schedule II. Some of them tightly regulated them. Some of them allowed them in over-the-counter tonics in large quantities. And the point of the Harrison Act was to clean that up and impose a uniform federal regime, and they knew it would have an impact on state regulation of medicine, and even the court in the Linder days recognized that that was not per se a constitutional problem. But what about gutting? Never mind Mr. Atkinson's argument. What about gutting? Well, it's an odd statute. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with the, with the principle that uh, the federal authority only extends to prevent that which would gut the statute and no further. That seems like an odd principle. And I think that here it is a perfectly legitimate interpretation of this statute to say that a Congress that was profoundly concerned with overdoses, with suicide, with drug abuse, precisely because of its debilitating effect on people's lives, would not have been agnostic at the prospect of federally any, controlled at substances. This, at the time the statute was passed to deal with lax state treatment of opium, was opium regulated as part of medical practice in any of the states? It was, Mr. Chief Justice. They were all over the map, but there was clearly a recognition that doctors were part and parcel of the problem, that there were needs in states to more closely regulate both the doctors and the pharmacies. That was kind of the two problems that gave rise to this. And there's no question that the impact of the federal program was profound on the state's practice of medicine. Nonetheless, that program was upheld, and that has been the tradition in this area. Was, was the impact profound because they were in what's now Schedule One that they were just prohibited? In other words, were doctors allowed to prescribe opium for some purposes? They were, and opium's now on Schedule Two. The Harrison Act did not have the schedules we're familiar with from the controlled substance, but most of what was at issue, I mean, opium in its various forms, morphine, all of that is now on Schedule Two, and that's really what prompted the Harrison Act in the first instance. May I ask you this question? If the Attorney General determined that acupuncture 
was conduct that threatened the public health and safety, could he de-license de or revoke the license of doctors who engaged in acupuncture? I don't think so, Justice Stephen. It's the same reason as my answer earlier, which is I think you have to look at this regime and read it in light of the 90 years of federal involvement in the regulation of controlled substances and the lack of a traditional federal rule in regulating medicine qua medicine. And I think this is on the, on the side of the line of regulating controlled substances. With respect to the Commerce Clause issue, I would thought that one thing that came clear out of the race decision is that the relevant factor to consider is not the class of activities that a state decides to decriminalize, but rather the class of activities that Congress decides to regulate. And with respect to Schedule II substances, I would think this case is a fortiori. We're not talking about substances that are homegrown and are never part of a commercial transaction. And even those who are in the dissent in Raich, I think, would think that this was an appropriate Commerce Clause application. This case is to Raich as the regulation of commercial farming would be to Wickard against Filburn. It is a much different situation. Congress's Commerce Clause power is more robust here. I wanted to remark and focus for a minute on what an odd statute Oregon has passed. The practitioner respondents point out it is a prescribing law only. And Oregon itself points out that what's allowed here is the prescription but not the administration of these substances. Even what Oregon does does not purport to be medicine as one traditionally understands it. I can think of no other medical substance where a doctor can prescribe it but not administer it. And I think if you look at that aspect of the statute, what becomes clear is that Oregon is not regulating medicine. It's purporting to basically take a federal regulatory regime that allows doctors the ability to get at Schedule II substances. Thank you. Thank you, General Clement. The case is submitted.